Hi everyone, it's Jenny from JTJ Crimes Podcast, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Jaden and Tori. And today we want to welcome you to the ABC Murders episode. Our story begins with Detective Corot receiving a letter after coming home from his ranch in South America. Yes, and in this letter it's stated, Mr. Hercule Perot, you fancy yourself, don't you, at solving mysteries that are too difficult for our poor, thick-headed British police? Let us see, Mr. Clever Perot, just how clever you can be. Perhaps you'll find this nut too hard to crack. Look out for Andover on the 21st of the month. Yours, ABC. The main suspect at this point was her husband, Mr. Asher, because it was very well known in the town that they were not on good terms. On the 22nd at 1 a.m., the body of Mrs. Asher was found by Police Constable Dover. He thought that the house was empty, so he went in to see what was happening and found her body hurled up under the counter. The death occurred between nine to seven hours prior. The cause of death was that the victim was struck in the back of the head while going to reach for some cigarettes. There was also no weapon found at the crime scene. The morgue stated that the murderer could have been male or female. Something common that we'll see through every murder in the story is a railway guide left somewhere at the crime scene. In Mrs. Asher's case, this guide was left on the counter, and it showed that the murderer wasn't from Andover. This basically excluded every suspect that was investigated, but the first suspect was Franz Asher, Alice's husband. They were known to not have a very good relationship, but throughout the day he wasn't seen going in or out of the shop. His alibi was that he was out drinking with his friends Dick Willows, George, Platt, and Curdy. Another one of Alice's relatives was investigated as well, and that was Mary, her niece. When Mary was investigated, she told the detectives that she never thought that Mr. Asher would follow through with any of the threats he had given to Alice because she knew that he was more afraid of her than she was of him. Mary was basically out of the picture because she had no motive and loved her aunt very much. Another suspect, Mr. Partridge, is the last person to see her alive. His alibi was that when he was seen leaving the store, Mrs. Asher was still alive, so the time frame did not match up. And the last suspect we have was Mr. Riddle. He was very angry that he was being considered as a suspect, which is never really a good look, but he did in fact have an alibi. He went in after the murder happened and knew the time exactly because he heard the church bells chime. He said that he saw the railway guide on the counter, but he didn't see the body, so he just left. At this point, the detectives didn't know who did it, and they were kind of lost words. But they then received a second letter. Dear Mr. Perot, well, what about it? First game to me, I think. The Andover business went with a swing, didn't it? But the fun's only just beginning. 
Let me draw your attention to Bex Hill on C, the 25th ends. What a merry time we are having. Yours, ABC. This next victim, Elizabeth Bernard, was a waitress at a cafe called Ginger Cat. The body was found by Colonel Jerome, who was walking his dogs along the beach. The cause of death was strangulation with her own belt. As I mentioned before, there was another railway guide at this crime scene. This time, it was found under her body. The cafe that Betty worked at was called Ginger Cat Cafe. This cafe was located on the seafront, and it's a small tea room. They had little tables covered with orange checkered cloths with uh, woven chairs with orange cushions. And they had five different teas, including a plain one, a fruit one, and farmhouse. The first suspect that Detective Perot investigated was Miss Marion, the manager of Ginger Cat. She was a thin woman, 40 years old, and had wispy orange hair. In the story, they compared her to the Ginger Cat. Miss Marion said it was Betty's second summer working there. She was a regular. She was a good waitress, quick and obliging, and a nice, clean-looking girl. The night she was murdered, she left at 8 when they closed. The rush was over by 6.30, and she never talked about her after-work plans. The second suspect was Miss Higley. She was a nice young lady. She worked with Betty. She was a plump girl and was always out of breath with dark hair, rosy cheeks, and dark eyes googling with excitement. She started working in March. She said Betty was quiet and plenty of fun. Wasn't one time she said Betty was going to meet a friend and she had on a new white dress. Betty had a sister named Megan who was in London working as a typist. She was compared to as a Dutch doll because she had dark hair that was cut into a straight bob. She also had bangs, high cheekbones, and her figure had a queer modern angle that had somehow looked unattractive. She also had an intensity to her. She said that her sister was a bright girl with no men friends. She said Betty was a little, should I say the word ass? <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> okay, is it still recording? Yes! <laughs> okay. She was very fond of Betty, but fondness doesn't blind her from seeing exactly the little silly little girl she was. She always ignored Megan's advice, and she liked being taken out to dances and that little cheap flattery and compliments. She said that John, um, Don was very quiet and was a steady and hardworking man. She thought that he would make a good husband and that he couldn't always express how he felt in words. However, she did say that Don and Betty always fought. He was very jealous of Betty and always thought that she was talking to another man. Once or twice they had a fight and she said it is like all those quiet people. When they do lose their tempers, they lose them with a vengeance. Dawn was very violent that Betty was afraid of him. Betty couldn't stand that hungry girl, too. The last and final suspect for Betty's murder was Dawn, her fiancé. His white, haggard face and bewildered eyes showed how great a shock he had when he found out the news about Betty. Betty told him that she was going with a girlfriend to St. Leonard's. And since he was always super jealous and thought that he, she was cheating on him, he wasn't sure if that was true.
he said that he went to St. Leonard's around 8 p.m. and watched the buses to see if he could see Betty and what she was doing. Then he went to Hastings to look for her, said he got home around midnight. The first place that the detectives decided to look for answers was the cafe, but after talking to the waitresses and being at a dead end, they headed to the Bernard family home. The parents lived in a new bungalow, one of 50 or so, recently run up by a builder on the confines of town. Mr. Bernard was a stout-looking man of 55 or so. Mrs. Bernard, who has evidently been crying bitterly, her eyes were reddened, and she walked with an uncertain gait of a person who had a great shop. They didn't notice that she didn't come home because they go to bed early at around 9 o'clock. They usually leave a key under the mat for her for when she comes home. They said that she was engaged to Donald Fraser who worked at Quartz and Brunskill as a state agent. Him and Betty would meet once or twice a week, but they never knew what she was up to the night of the murder. Detective Perot received another letter. This one stated, Poor Mr. Perot, not so good at these little criminal matters as you thought yourself, are you? Rather past your prime, perhaps? Let us see if you can do any better this time. This time, it's an easy one. Churston on the 30th. Do try and do something about it. It's a bit dull having it all my own way, you know. Good hunting, ever yours, ABC. The only problem with this was that Perot received the letter on the 30th when it was supposed to reach him three days before. The address on the letter was sent to the white... <laughs> Horse. Mansions when it was supposed to be sent to the White Haven. They actually <laughs> received it on the day of the murder, and at that point, it was too late. The next victim was Sir Carmichael Clark. The cause of death was that his head was bashed in. He was a well-known throat specialist who had retired from his procession. He collected Chinese pottery and inherited from his uncle. On the day of the murder, he went on his daily walk around the estate. Then he was hit on the back of the head with a heavy instrument so that he didn't see the face of the murderer. Going back to the railway guide, being the only connection between any of these murderers at this point, um, the ABC railway guide was open face down on his dead body when he was found. Clark only has one brother, and his wife is dying of cancer. His brother was asked if strangers come around the area, and he responded by saying only in August to go to the Broad Sand Beach. The next, the next suspect is Laura Gray. She is the brother's secretary, and she is described as an extraordinary Scandinavian famous girl. She has colorless ash hair, light gray eyes, and a transparent glowing parlor that one finds among Norwegian and Swedes. She looks about 27, and seemed to be as efficient as she was decorative. She lied about seeing a stranger the day of the murder. It was actually a guy selling stockings. And she said that usually Mr. Clark comes home from his walk at around quarter of 10. The last and final suspect was Mr. Clark's wife. She was really sick and uh, Miss Gray even said that she was too dazed to understand what was happening and that it would be basically impossible for her to be the murderer. Mrs. Clark also envied Mrs. Gray because... Miss Gray, right? Because she spent so much time with Mr. Clark and she wanted her gone.
at this point, Mr. Perot was really at a dead end and had nowhere else to turn to. Then he got his fourth and final letter. It stated, Still no success? What are you and the police doing? Well, well, isn't this fun? And where shall we go next for honey? Poor Mr. Perot, I'm quite sorry for you. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. We've got a long way to go still. Tipperary? No, that comes farther on. Letter T. The next little incident will take place at Doncaster on September 11th. So long, ABC. This mission Clark came up with the idea of forming a legion. This group consists of Megan, Don, Mary, the two detectives, Miss Gray, and the help from Mr. and Mrs. Bernard. When the Legion got together, Detective Perot started questioning each member to see which pieces of the puzzle fit together. Franklin Clark went sailing in the morning, then came home for lunch to eat Irish stew, then fell asleep in the hammock. The last thing he remembers doing was writing letters to a friend. Then he got asked, did you see anyone by the sea? He responded by saying lots of people. The next person that they asked the question was for Miss Gray. She asked what she was doing that day of the crime. She responded by saying that she was doing correspondence with Sir Carmichael in the morning, and then she saw the housekeeper. Later on, she wrote letters and did needlework in the afternoon. The next suspect was Megan, Betty's sister. She was asked when the last time she saw her sister was, and she responded with, I saw her on the fortnight, because she was down at the family house for that weekend. Since the weather was nice, they went to the Hastings to swim. The detectives asked what Megan and Betty talked about, and Megan answered with that they talked about Dawn and how they both disliked Millie Higley. They then asked Dawn Frazier if he saw anyone at midnight at the cafe. His response was there was a large amount of people that you can't remember. The last person that they questioned was Mary Jower. She got asked if she got letters from her aunt a lot, and she said yes. They also asked when was the last, and it was two days before the murder. She And then they asked what it said, and she said the old devil had been around, and that she sent him off of flea in the ear. Said she expected me over the over on the Wednesday, that day out, and said we go to the pictures, because it was going to be her birthday. point in the story is when the fourth murder occurs. His name is George Earlsfield. The murder occurred in a movie theater and George was unfortunately stabbed to death um, and going along with the rest of the murders there was a railway guide at this crime scene as well and it was found under his seat. The difference with this crime scene is that his name did not be on the letter D but also there was a witness left behind, and his name was Roger Emanuel Downs. At this point, it's believed that Alexander Cust is the murderer because his initials are ABC. Cust also was near the scene of the crime for all four murders. Tom also calls in information regarding that Cust lied about what train station he was going to. Oh! <laughs> So at this point, they took Cust into custody, but found out that he had an alibi for the second murder. His alibi's name was Mr. Strange. He was around 40 years old, 
tough, confident, and self-opinionated. He was a mining engineer, and he picked up Cuss in the White Cross Hotel on the evening of July 24th. He noticed that Cuss was a lonely, a lonely man and looked like he needed someone to talk to. They were up to at least midnight playing dominoes together, so he could not have killed Betty because she was killed in the early morning of the 25th. In Alexander Cuss' cupboards, they found ABC guides, a typewriter given to him by his firm, a list with Mrs. Asher's name crossed off, where he then responded that one must begin somewhere. At the end, Detective Perot figured out that it wasn't Alexander Cuss. It was actually Franklin Clark, because his motivation was that his brother inherited money, and if Lady Clark died, he would get with Miss Gray, and she would then inherit it if he ever died. the story, Perot uses deductive reasoning when he is obtaining the information to prove the guiltiness of the killer. Once he proves who the killer could be, he then uses inductive reasoning to then work backwards to prove his guiltiness. Detective Perot uses the steps for deductive reasoning by going through the theory to the hypothesis to observation to confirmation and for induction reasoning he uses observation pattern to have hypothesis theory the abc murders is a fair play mystery because it follows the rules of a knox epilogue in the book the criminal mentioned in the early part of the story isn't known so that is true because we didn't know that franklin clark was the murderer there is also no supernatural agencies in it and there was no secret rooms. Um, the main figure of the story wasn't a Chinese man. Do I say it like that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's fine. There's no Chinese men in There's the story. There's no Chinese men. Okay. Okay. Can I continue? Yes. Okay. And then there's no accidents that help the detective figure out to see if he's right. And lastly, there was no twin brothers in the story. No twins, no Chinese yep so i really enjoyed the abc murders i thought it was pretty interesting it wasn't the best book i've ever read but definitely not the best yeah i think it was it definitely it followed all the rules for the fair play murder and it was it was pretty frustrating not being able to know who the murderer was for like majority of the time but once you figure it out you're like oh okay I think it followed the rules, like, so strictly that it made it less interesting. Yeah, that that's you know? also part of it. It also helped me, like, understand, like, inductive and deductive reasoning more. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so this was our episode of the ABC Murders from JTJ Podcast. I'm Jenny. I'm Jaden. And I'm Tori. And we appreciate you guys listening and hope you enjoyed.